I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On Commons People this week, Boris Johnson hits reset. And to that end, we will build, build, build. Foreign affairs take center stage. President Trump has secured half a million courses of treatment of remdesivir. And England gets ready to lift lockdown. Uh, we're on a knife edge. It's very precarious, the situation in uh, particularly England at the moment. And I would anticipate we would see an increase in, in uh, new cases over the coming weeks, yes. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hello Paul. Rachel Wearmouth's here. Hi Arj. Hi Rachel. And we've got the Conservative former Minister and founder of the Big Tent Ideas Festival, George Freeman. Hi. Hello George, how are you? Well fine, still um, 53 and, and sort of balding. <laughs> uh, well, it's been a big week for Boris Johnson, who hit the big red reset button on his premiership after a bruising few months in the depths of the coronavirus crisis. The Prime Minister started the week by announcing Sir Mark Sedwell would be replaced as National Security Advisor by David Frost, with a competition underway to fill Sedwell's other role at the head of the civil service. Then there was a proper big speech in which Johnson pitched himself as the new FDR and announced $5 billion of spending on infrastructure in a bid to boost the economic recovery from coronavirus. Let's have a listen. I'm conscious, as I say all this, that it sounds like a prodigious amount of government intervention. It sounds like a new deal. And all I can say is, if that is so, then that is how it's meant to sound and how it's meant to be, because that is what the times demand. A government that is powerful and determined and that puts its arms around people at a time of crisis, that tackles homelessness, the inequalities that drive people to food banks, because it's time now, not just for a new deal, but for a fair deal for the British people. Uh, Paul, Johnson was going to specifically mention Franklin D. Roosevelt in his speech, but then deleted the line. Uh, why, do you, why, why do you think that happened? And, and what did you make of the reset? Well, I think that actually it's very understandable for him deleting that line, because I think he realised at the last minute it was a bit too grand a claim to make. The, the, to compare this five billion extra to um, FDR's New Deal, it just in terms of scale, didn't make sense. Now, obviously, um, the following day, in answer to Keir Starmer at PMQs, he, he expanded the five billion into the wider six hundred billion government program uh, that they've got lined up for the whole parliament. Now that obviously is is a big deal, there's no question. But I think on the day, I think he he maybe he saw the the wisdom of not overreaching himself. On the actual speech itself, I think what was interesting was the way the PM tried as ever to do this really tricky. Uh, dance between sounding really upbeat 
uh, about his plans for the future and and grasping the gravity of the current situation on Corona. Now, it's very, very difficult. I mean, he started off the speech by saying, look, you know, a lot of people will be wondering why I'm doing this right now, you know. And so he said it on the defensive from his very first sentence. He does have this problem, the Prime Minister. He, you know, he's got this natural ebullience, which let's not forget, and we shouldn't underrate this at all, is why he got elected, or the Tory government got elected with a landslide in the first place last December. It really, really is popular, that positivity. There's no question about it. Um, and if you talk to focus groups and you even look at the opinion polls, yeah, he's come down in popularity, but he's still ahead of the Labour Party. And there's a reason for that. A lot of people out there still have a, a store of goodwill for him, uh, particularly because he was ill. I think the difficulty now is that he's having to recalibrate some of that and he knows it, not just because of Corona, but because of the looming jobs crisis. And I think that it's one thing having people finally sympathise with you because you've been ill, you've had direct experience of Corona, but he's never, let's be honest, had direct experience of being unemployed. And I think that could be a real difficulty for him unless he gets it right. And um, we'll find out from Rishi Sunak whether he has got it right next week. George, you've been a, a minister in Johnson's government. Uh, you were a minister in the last government. You were in number 10 on the policy board uh, under Theresa May. Um, what did you make of the kind of big reset this week, the speech and the, and the moves in Whitehall? Well, I thought this was a good moment, actually, for, uh, the, for the PM. I thought it was a proper sort of Boris bounce back speech. I thought he captured, as Paul said, a lot of the old energy and the vitality um, that does connect with people. And I think it captures uh, a lot of the the moment. People know that, you know, we've come through this appalling pandemic and now we've got to really bounce back. And I think on policy, you know, um, any thought or talk or worry that we're going to have a, a sort of another decade of austerity after the economic carnage of COVID um, completely and I think rightly, I think people want to see uh, some government leadership on recovery, on levelling up. So I, I think actually it was his best moment for a while. And I think the public will see energy, vision, ambition and, and a, a clarity, actually, of using the kind of bounce back better, build back better. Um, I think all of that is fine. The real challenge, I think, is, as I said in my budget speech in the spring, how do we actually deliver all of this um, infrastructure and these promises for, for well, I've been in Parliament a, a decade. We still haven't delivered a lot of George Osborne's infrastructure, let alone, <laughs> let alone Boris's early announcement. And the reason is that our infrastructure delivery is dominated by very unaccountable, slow, bureaucratic quangos. Uh, when I was at Transport, Highways England and Network Rail move at glacial speed. In fact, I visited a glacier once that moves quicker. <laughs> I, that is a real problem. And I, I, I mean... If we're really going to deliver infrastructure for cities and towns and left behind areas, we're going to rely on Highways England and Network Rail to do it. Uh, we will not be even close uh, to delivering on time. And I think we're going to need a new generation of sort of Boris and Ritchie, Freeport, Tory sort of development corporations that can move at pace. And I thought the focus on pace was probably the most important bit of the last week. And so what to that end, you, you're talking about kind of quangos and, and things getting chewed up in the system. What did you make of the treatment of Mark Sedwell and, and those and what, what Johnson and Cummings are doing more widely with Whitehall? Because they've ruffled a few feathers this week. Well, I'm torn here because on the one hand, I think there is an argument that the National Security Advisor 
should be different from the cabinet secretary. Um, my instinct would be that that is right, actually. You know, cabinet secretary's job to be the liaison, the permanent secretary of the government, the top of the civil service, the chair of the permanent secretary's cabinet, sitting in cabinet, providing that crucial clutch plate. I think that is a different role, actually, from National Security uh, Council. Um, but I'm surprised in a way that Mark Sedwell hasn't taken either job, that he's got neither. And, and that suggests that there's been, uh, you know, that relations haven't been great and that um, the PM wants to get his own person in there. I, I have to say Simon Case, who I think is the replacement for Mark, I, I've worked with Simon under David Cameron and he was absolutely first class. I mean, a really star civil servant. So, you know, I think it is, it's difficult this. In the old days, number 10 was, was just a kind of um, a place where the prime minister gathered Secretary of State to have a conversation about how they're all doing. Over the last decades, it's become a department as and of its own right, really, which is not sort of how the British Constitution is set up. And that does raise some quite interesting and important challenges for, you know, is it a department or not? And it is clearly under successive prime ministers from Blair to Cameron and now to Boris, it is becoming more of a department. And I think that will need to be properly constituted so that it can be effective. And I think it is fair as a prime minister these days, you've got to have a permanent civil servant who is with you. Yeah, interesting. Um, others in Westminster are not very happy, are they, Rachel, about what's happened to Ted Wills? About Mark Sedwell, no. Uh, there's um, uh, Labour very much against Lib Dems are very much against uh, those, those you would kind of expect. You know, I mean, um, Gus O'Donnell, the former head of the civil service, also very unhappy about it. But some of the more intriguing interventions when Michael Gove came to explain the decision um, in the comments this week came from um, Theresa May, former Conservative leader. She's very, very uncomfortable about it. She says, why does the why does the new national security advisor, why is he a political appointee with no, no proven experience in national security? And um, before that, we'd also heard from um, Michael Haig, who'd written in the, sorry, William Hague, who'd written in um, The Telegraph, who'd said kind of he'd also hit out at being a political appointee. And he'd said um, that the uh, number 10 has a reprehensible habit of um, these sort of anonymous briefings in the newspapers against people in the civil service. There's a lot of discomfort, I think, among the Conservatives about what's happening with the civil service. Yeah. Um, George, uh, is, is Cummings just still kind of... Um in that mode of that, almost that campaign mode. And he, he seems to not be able to operate without rubbing someone up the wrong way. Yeah. So um, again, I'm torn here because I think, you know, Dominic has um, a lot of views I share about the need to bring um, more data science, more entrepreneurialism, more insurgency and reform to the heart of government. Um, where we disagree is that, um, I think he he has a kind of uh, insurgent's contempt for due process, and I <clears throat> I suspect he he finds the whole business of sort of having to get elected and being accountable and um, the government having to be accountable to Parliament um, all rather boring. But it is it's important. It, it's a it's a key fundamental democratic protection. And I mean, I think everyone who's been in Number Ten at times has probably thought I'd much rather have a benign dictatorship. Well. <laughs> The problem with benign dictatorships is the second bit. It's the word dictatorship. Um, so I kind of respect Dominic's frustration with slow, sclerotic, 
um, delivery. And I just made that point. But I do think that pace and um, reform has got to be accountable. And you might have a benign dictator one day, but you knock over the protections and the processes of democratic accountability and then beware who you might get the next day. So, uh, you know, I think there is a real problem here. And I, I do think we have to try and make sure that in driving the pace and the delivery, we don't dismantle the architecture of delivery with the civil service. We've got to carry the civil service with us. And I'd like us to see a bit more freedom, incentives, a bit more of a responsibility for directors in civil service not to be able to hide behind the politics of their department. I'd, I'd like us to be celebrating the leaders. Let's see more of the top 50 civil servants. Who's actually leading on the delivery of some of these projects? We don't hear about it. And I think that light of transparency, getting them in front of select committees more, acknowledging them as leaders would be a more powerful way of driving pace and delivery into the culture. Well, talking of dictatorships, it's been a big week on the global stage with uh, China introducing a new security law for Hong Kong, which dilutes freedoms established during the city's handover from British rule in 1997. The UK has responded by offering a path to British citizenship for nearly three million Hong Kongers to give them a route out of the crackdown. Meanwhile, Donald Trump has caused controversy by buying up almost the entire world's supply of the drug remdesivir, which is used to treat coronavirus. Uh, Labour is taking a more hawkish stance on China these days. Let's hear Shadow Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy. The government's approach to China for the last decade has been deeply confused because on the one hand, you have these very tough measures that the Prime Minister announced today. But on the other hand, they've given a Chinese company, Huawei, a major role in our 5G network. They're pressing ahead with nuclear power projects like Bradwell, which will give the Chinese government significant access to our uh, nuclear system and our energy systems. And they're looking to China very strongly for investment from a treasury perspective in order to help the economic rebuild after COVID-19. This is a really confused approach from this government. And that's why today in the House of Commons, we asked the Foreign Secretary that, to make sure that this starts the, the mark of a new era in our relations with China. We've been going after Chinese investment without regard for the consequences for national security for too long. And we need to take this far more seriously. Paul, Johnson was, was often criticised as, as Foreign Secretary, but um, do you think he's had a fairly good week this week on foreign affairs? Well, I think the interesting thing is that there's a big difference, obviously, between being Prime Minister and being Foreign Secretary. Um, and when you're Prime Minister, you can range more widely, you've got more authority, obviously, you speak for the nation. Um, a Foreign Secretary often has to stick to the script, and it's, it's obviously for very good reasons, a very, very uh, carefully passed and worded script. Whenever you're dealing with diplomacy, every word you say counts, and certainly when it comes to China, every word you say counts. So what we've seen in the last week is a much more bullish approach from the PM. Um, it's been signalled in very carefully calibrated stages, obviously by him and, and Dominic Raab. They were preparing for this moment. They they warned the Chinese, look, we could do this uh, if you if you go ahead with this law. Now the law has been introduced. Um, they're actioning it. The Home Office is still working it up, this idea of um, British nationals uh, in Hong Kong having these um, new rights and path to citizenship. So it's it's not the detail of it is yet to be there, but the principle has been firmly established by the Prime Minister in Prime Minister's questions, no less. So it was a very firm signal. He could have waited for Dominic Raab to, to come out with that, but he decided to put his own stamp on it this week. Um, whether it will work is another question. I, I think 
um, in some senses, there's a bit of saber rattling going on on both sides because um, there's already evidence that lots of um, uh, voters may not be very happy at having three million migrants, even though they're perfectly honourable and hardworking ones from Hong Kong coming to Britain. Uh, and given that the referendum was in part based on immigration controls, suddenly allowing three million people in to Britain um, may well cause a bit of a problem for, for Boris Johnson in red wall seats as well as uh, shire seats. So how it actually rolls out is something else. Um, and it may well be that it is simply about the the signals sent, being sent to, to Hong Kong. Um, Dominic Raab made it absolutely clear last night that if China was somehow to try and stop these people from leaving the country, um, there's not a lot Britain could do about that. Yeah, uh, George, George you, you're, you were an ally of David Cameron, and under his premiership, the UK and China established what was meant to be a golden era in relations. That seems to be over now. Um, was it a mistake to try and get close to China? No, I think uh, diplomacy is about diplomacy. It's about opening up markets, building relationships, negotiating all the time, trying to get the best deal you can. <clears throat> but I think. Um, I think it is, uh, well, there are two things about China, I think. Firstly, uh, the fact that this pandemic came out of China and that the accountability, let me be polite, the accountability on the kind of early international accountability of what exactly had happened wasn't what it, what it needs to be. And uh, the world has paid a very, very high price. And I think it is also clear that in recent years, people have started to see how China works in Africa, uh, the, the way in which it drives a very, very hard um, approach to sort of economic nationalism. And that this uh, post-COVID moment is the moment we have to decide, I mean, genuine big diplomacy, are we going to strengthen the institutions of international governance? Is this going to be a moment where we kind of deepen the resilience of globalization? Or is it going to be a moment where actually we do the opposite? And I'm uh, the, the Americas, Europe and Asia turn in on themselves and we see a, quite a significant backpedalling on globalisation. And I, 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 I worry about that latter because I think we'd be ceding a lot of the ASEAN market to Chinese dominance. I used to be trade envoy in the Philippines. And there's a lot of countries there with very good values, very strong liberal democratic countries that want to trade with us who are really worried about falling under a very dominant Chinese influence. And if we withdraw... I think not only does it uh, it'll it'll damage trade, but I think we may well um, suffer diplomatically as well. So I mean, I think um, Boris is you know it was a big move, and I think it will have rattled the Chinese. And I can't help but share Paul's wry observation that um, you know Boris's leadership and the referendum result and the election was based on quite heavy signalling that the days of open door uh, immigration are over, um, and. Uh, Yet this this is a very big signal that we'd be up for taking potentially three million Chinese. I, I, let's hope, and I, I suspect that it'll work, and it won't come to that. But that said, um, a big dose of Hong Kong enterprise and uh, innovation from um, from that incredible crucible of fast paced dynamic growth might help to drive our growth as well. Yeah, indeed, and, and just um, to pick up on what you were saying about protectionism and, and globalization. Um, you were once a life sciences minister as well. You've got a lot of experience with drawing on here, but what do you make of um, Donald Trump's decision to hoard remdesivir? I think there's there's two issues there. There's the specifics on remdesivir. And as I understand it, I mean, I'm no longer obviously a minister or in the government, but 
he's done a deal with Gilead, uh, which is a uh, sort of proprietary procurement deal. But in it, in order that global supplies aren't restricted, there's a licensing arrangement so that nine other pharma companies can produce Remdesivir for other countries. So I, I suspect it's a bit of a, it's a sort of stick for the anti-Trump, um, the very large anti-Trump movement to beat him with. Um, I, my understanding of the deal is that it doesn't prevent Remdesivir from the rest of the country. But I, but I think the your question really asks uh, and flags a really big issue, which is Trump is clearly um, indulging in some pretty strong protectionist economic nationalism. Uh, and of course, it actually works if you pull back from international trade and you tariff other countries' goods and you make more of your own. Americans in the Midwest are feeling uh, the benefit. Um, and I think there's a real danger. We saw it this week. It's coming in the UK now on the, the food and agriculture uh, and trade bill. You know, for 40 years, our trade policy has been set through through Europe. And now we're going our, our own way. This is a huge moment where actually British governments are now going to start negotiating bilateral trade deals. Great, fine. Uh, to, to me, trade is about projecting your values, about setting some goals. You use trade to drive the things that you want, as well as obviously prosperity. So are we going to accept coronated chicken? Are we going to accept uh, food standards that are well below our own, which would throw our own farmers onto the scrap heap? I deeply hope we won't. I'm cheered at the reassurances that we've had from uh, Liz Truss and George Eustace. But this is quite important because we know that the Americans will put cheap food number one. It's always number one on their trade list. I was at the National Farmers Union 20 years ago and negotiated a trade deal with the Americans. They, they don't mess around on this stuff. This is absolute pork barrel Midwest congressional politics. And you've got to decide. It's either a red line or it isn't. And I hope that Boris puts his foot down here and says, listen, Global Britain, Brexit, we, we promised it wouldn't be a moment to go cheap, to go low, to sell out our standards. It's going to be a moment to go high, to defend British standards, fly the flag. I'd like us to use our trade policy to support global standards and British standards. And actually, I think if we went down that road, we'd not only harness more support for Brexit in the country, get people behind it, but I think we'd also boost our UK agri-tech and food science leadership. It's a big sector. I was minister for it. Huge global markets. So I hope we don't go down the road of sort of selling everything out to the cheap food, the sort of grizzled, finger-licking American uh, lobby, and throw away at the same time our ability to shape uh, the global market for sustainable food, sustainable metrics of agri-tech. It's a big market, uh, particularly in the emerging Asian economies. Yeah, George has written for us about that this week, so you can read that online in more detail. But um, Rachel, I just wanted to ask you about... Um, Lisa Nandy's words there. Quite interesting that Labour's stance is kind of toughened on China. What what do you think is behind is behind that? Yeah, in that clip, she sounded very much like she was advocating a ban on CGN at uh, Hinkley Point and um, ruling out Huawei's involvement in five G. She later kind of rolled back on that and said that the UK needs to look at sort of development, developing homegrown alternatives, and had to properly assess the national security implications. But I think. Labour's stance generally on foreign affairs now is kind of trying to recover from the damage that Jeremy Corbyn did. Um, you know, the, the party was very much perceived as weak, close to people like Sinn Féin. And I think um, 
the 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 basis for for how they're going to try and position themselves will be a little bit like what George has just talked about in terms of standing up not just for British interests but for British values as well. And I think that's that's informing some of her stance because I know from some of the speeches she gave when she was running for the leadership, it was all about she she was very critical of Remainers actually kind of saying that a lot of people within Labour would just defend the EU but not make any criticisms of the things that they got wrong and where they didn't align with with British values. And I think that um, that she she wants to advocate very strongly for a rules-based international order and she would say that China is outside of that as Donald Trump is arguably outside of that as well. Yeah, I mean, actually, George, do do you think... Trump's wider anti-science rhetoric is a real worry, not just for America, but for the rest. I mean, on vaccines, you name it. Um, Remdesivir is just one example of him trying to use global clout of America. But actually, at home, it seems though he's not listening to the science. Yeah, I do. I I do think it's a worry, actually. And um, when I was life science minister, David Cameron and I did three trips to the US. I did two White House trips Joe Biden was doing a lot of work on uh, cancer. We were building a UK-American transatlantic cancer collaboration using our leadership in genomics um, and informatics. And, you know, I think one of the things this COVID pandemic has highlighted is, you know, the relationship between economy and health. And for years, we've treated them as very different things. Um, But we've discovered actually the cost of disease is enormous if you're not ready and the value of health. And I, I hope this is a moment where we start to think as a government here, as well as governments across the G20, about valuing in the public accounts. You know, what's the value of public health? What's the value of healthy children? Um, we, I mean, give me an example. Obesity apparently costs the West Midlands four billion a year. Well, if that's right, you know, they're government figures, that provides quite a good basis for costing some interventions. If you can help to get those costs down, and I think there's a moment where here where the world globally through the G20 could start to get a stronger grip on public health and recognize it's in all our interests to boost global health resilience. And to see Donald Trump kind of turn his back on multilateralism and on that whole idea of deepening international progress on public health is very worrying. I'm doing some work at the moment on health economy, uh, uh, an international commission. And when you speak to Americans who are involved in public health and science, it's extraordinary the degree of yearning to be part of something broader uh, and the feeling that their own country is beginning to become hostile to um, the things that science really does well and that it really requires. And I think that if I was an American, I'd be quite worried about that because it is fundamental to their ability to really drive technological leadership and to hold the flag high for Western values. And if America isn't going to be the leader of a of a powerful and respected Western alliance, then there are other groups and nations who will step into that vacuum. Is it safe to assume, George, I mean, obviously, given what you've just said, that if you were an American citizen, you'd be very tempted to vote Biden this November? Well, I'm not a member of the government, and there's a very sensible um, convention that government members of the government don't involve themselves in other countries' politics. Um, I think it's very clear that, um, from what I've said, that I I would really struggle, uh, if I was an American citizen, um, to feel that Donald Trump embodies the best of America's values around the world. And I I can't put it any better than um, uh, the former American um, Secretary of State for Defense put it, 
that the head of state in America, the president, the commander in chief, also has a duty to strengthen the ties that bind the American people together and to be a force for unity in a way that our monarch just automatically does with every breath. And I think that's, it's the first time in my life I've seen an American president who seems to thrive on division, internal division. And I think that is quite worrying. And it, it it's likely to foster division within the Western alliance. And when you've got, you know, a thinly disguised kleptocracy running Russia, the Middle East in flames, an aggressive in, uh, expansionist China pursuing pretty naked economic nationalism, this is no time for the Western alliance to turn in and fight on itself or to withdraw. And I, I really hope that we see through this presidency, challenged by Joe Biden, that Donald Trump steps up into a, into a very different kind of um, statesman role than we've seen hitherto. Uh, well, despite what Donald Trump might think, coronavirus is just not going away. This weekend, though, many lockdown restrictions will be eased in England with pubs, restaurants and cafes opening for the first time since March. But are the British public ready? An Ipsos Mori poll has shown that just 29% are comfortable going to bars and restaurants, while only 25% are comfortable with indoor cinemas or theatres. Um, with Leicester going into local lockdown this week and the test and trace programme still falling short of where it needs to be, perhaps it's unsurprising. Let's listen to the infectious diseases expert and SAGE member, Sir Jeremy Farrar, on this. You do expect a second spike. When do we start to see that happening, do you think? Well, we're seeing second spikes now in continental Europe, in, in Germany, and I, can, I think we will see rebounds. It'll be in certain situations. Um, we've had outbreaks in um, meatpacking factories across the continent and indeed in the UK. Uh, I think a true second wave will come in the winter months in, in October, November. And one of the, the really difficult things for all of us in September, October is going to be when we all get normal coughs and colds and children are back going to school and they get respiratory infections that are normal at that time of year. Have we got the capacity to distinguish normal respiratory infections, influenza and others, from COVID-19? George, uh, there's been quite a debate in your party over lockdown. Are, are people broadly happy now? And if we get a second wave, are the public to blame or is the government to blame for lifting restrictions too early or not getting test and trace sorted? Oh, two questions. I, I think most MP colleagues feel that, um, you know, the, the public responded magnificently to the call um, it's nearly three months. It's a long time for people to be locked down and in some some ways locked up. And everyone needs to just get some fresh air. Um, I, I'm a bit worried by the kind of party Saturday um, risk that everyone sort of just overdoes it. Um, I, I, I thought the approach of just gently easing the lockdown restrictions uh, was rather better. And I suspect there'll be a few hangovers on Sunday, Monday, and also... I fear there may be there may well be some some very localized uh, spikes. Maybe not. Uh, maybe this virus is going to be um, kept back by the sunshine and the heat and the sunny weather. That was always part of the the, th um, the thinking. I went to a cobra on coronavirus back in February, and that was the advice then that w it was felt that the virus would be uh, would kind of retreat back in the summer. Um, look, I think on the uh, the ending of lockdown, there's two points really. I just I'm really worried about the education bit. Uh, I don't think this has been um, the best bit of this whole process. Um, and I observe that, you know, the, the unions in the education system, in stark contrast to the magnificent self-sacrifice of our health and care workers, 
I just, it, it hasn't been their finest hour. I mean, it looks as though a generation of children are going to suffer because the unions have decided to flex their muscle and um, sort of just uh, play it by the book on exercising their powers. And I, I think a lot of parents and a lot of, um, I mean, my children are teenagers, a lot of children who have taken their education seriously and those of us who care about them are, are really worried. I mean, this is a generation that could well suffer. And I, I'd like to see more flexibility from the unions on it. And I think we need to, we've got to make sure that there isn't a generation who suffer an, an, an attainment gap. And I hope after this weekend, we don't see more local lockdowns, but I totally support the government. If we see spikes taking off in, uh, in places, then it must be the right thing to do. Yeah, uh, Rachel, given people aren't comfortable going to pubs, can you believe it? Um, what does that mean for schools when they're supposed well, to come back in September? Uh, well, the, the new guidance today said there'll be no limit on class sizes. Um, so that kind of uh, takes takes care of some of the problems that they had previously. Um, I, I think there are some things that are not, not covered by the guidance. I think if you're, for example, a BAME parent and you look at the recommend, you look at the fact that there were no recommendations on that Public Health England report that said a lot of BAME communities were having a higher prevalence of COVID. I don't know, is it, is, it, is it fair for the education secretary to say that he would fine those parents if they didn't want to send their children to school? I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of areas that are not covered by it and which we'll, they'll still continue to have questions by questions with. And I think um, one of the things that also came out of the guide today is that if um, it, it, there wouldn't necessarily be whole school shutdowns if there were positive cases, you know, that they, they would take it in, in different steps where classes might be tested or the one one individual child's contacts would be would be tested. Um, so I think that kind of they've kind of really concentrated that down as well. But one of the things that um, the education secretary could not answer as, as, as part of um, the questions in the comments today was just when all of these children who need laptops to study at home would get them because they still don't have them. There are still scores of kids who don't have them and yet they're going to be asked to self-isolate for 14 days if they test positive and they will be expected to learn at school, uh, learn at home. And how can they do that if they don't have a laptop? Yeah, I would have liked to see us do something really bold and just, you know, place a bulk order. Um, basic notebooks now are like less than 100 quid. You know, if we if we bought and supplied a notebook, to every school age child above a certain age, you know, of age, I think it would have been a real contribution to helping them learn, keep the laptop, start a business with it, do whatever, become a games entrepreneur. But just this is a moment to do some bold things that we don't normally do rather than sit around endlessly arguing with the trade unions about how we're going to make the normal rules work. Uh, we have to be a bit a bit bold on this. All right, George has to go, so we're going to do a very quick quiz. And this week's is in honour of Dominic Cummings ordering an away day for special advisors, uh, which will be on a Saturday, which I'm sure they'll be very pleased with. Um, so just shout the answer if you know it. Uh, Cummings ordered Spads to read two books before the away day. Uh, one is Philip Tetlock's Super Forecasting, but what is the other? Pass. Oh, God, I don't know. If you don't know, you won't get it. Is it the, Sun Tzu's Art of the Art of War? No, I'll give you a, I'll give you a quote. <laughs> the, the, the quote. The famous quote in the book is, only the paranoid survive. Don't know that. No, no don't okay, know. I'll give you the answer because uh, it's High Output Management by Andrew Grove, <laughs> uh, the former chief executive of Intel. 
Um, I, I was more... going to say, I was going to say, is it do androids dream of electric sheep? <laughs> <laughs> um, second question: In the special advisors meeting, who did Cummings describe as a moron for joining the Looney Tunes conspiracy group? Jonathan Powell. Yes, well done. Point for Paul. Uh, it was Tony Blair's former chief of staff, Don Jonathan Powell, who's criticised him over the uh, uh, the goings on in Whitehall. Um, in a speech at the weekend, thought to be heavily influenced by Cummings, Michael Gove said he wanted people in government to be familiar with Monte Carlo methods. But what are they? Um, playing blackjack. No, I think I think they're to do with data science, aren't they? They're, yes. Yeah, they're to do with. Um, well, I, I couldn't. I couldn't actually write down what they are, but they are a method of looking at and analysing data sets. I think. Yeah, I think I'll give I'll give you a point for that, uh, George. It's um, it basically it relies on repeated random sampling to obtain numerical results. So a draw in the quiz this week. So well done, George and Paul. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so that you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. We'll just leave you with Sky News's foreign affairs editor, Deborah Haynes, demonstrating the difficulty of home working live on air as she discussed the situation in Hong Kong. Minister David Cameron was talking about... Oh, I'm really sorry, that's my son arriving. Sorry, really embarrassed. Sorry. Hold on one second. Sorry. Yes, you can have two biscuits. I'm really sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, OK, well, let's, we'll leave uh, Deborah Haynes in full flow there with uh, some family duties, but that's what happens during uh, lockdown and trying to report in lockdown. But Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.